0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast,
1: Debbie Millman talks with Anil Dash about politics, technology, and culture. The single industry that is more responsible for creating culture today than any other, even entertainment or media, is tech. And part of it is because we're the mediators for the entertainment and media world. Here's
0: Debbie Milman. If you're interested in the tech world, you have almost certainly run across Anil Dash in one form or another. Maybe it was something he helped create, like a blogging platform. Or maybe it was something on internet ethics that he's written, like a column for Wired or his personal blog, which he started back in 1999. He was one of the first people on Twitter, and tens of thousands of tweets later, he's covered everything from tech to pop culture and life as a dad. He's currently the CEO of Fog Creek Software, and he's here today to talk about his amazing career as an entrepreneur, activist, and writer. Anil Dash, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Anil, I understand that your family got their first computer when you were five years old. Mm-hmm. It was a Commodore VIC-20. A VIC-20 VIC-20, 20, yeah. VIC-20. And you almost immediately started doing simple programming mm-hmm. at five? That was not uncommon back
1: then. There wasn't actually anything else you could do on a computer. There wasn't some sort of push-a-button-play-a-game kind of thing. You had We had an Atari for that, and people had that, if you wanted to just plug in a cartridge and play a game but with a computer then you almost necessarily had to code and so you would just uh, by rote type in what you saw in in a programming manual or later in these computer magazines that you would be able to get and if you didn't do that that box wasn't going to do a lot for you and so it was just uh, out of necessity more than anything that everybody who used a computer back then was a programmer.
0: Your parents are from Orissa, India, but you were born and grew up near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What motivated your parents to move there?
1: You know, I get a different answer about that question every time I ask them. And uh, it's everything from, like, we just picked it out of a hat. We didn't pay a lot of attention to uh, the very specific of a job offer. What I've come to understand, and this is my sort of own interpretation, my father is a civil engineer. He built highways and bridges for 40 years. I think he had gotten his education, gotten his Ph.D. in civil engineering, and you know, in those days, the only way that you could do work as a highway builder was to work for a state government. And I think he applied to the state government in all 50 states and probably got the best offer from Pennsylvania and the capital of Pennsylvania is Harrisburg. And that's why I was born there. I think that was a very engineered, pragmatic way of assessing where to live and raise a family and grow up. It certainly was not based on uh, any cultural connection because they ended up being just about the first uh, Indian family and probably one of the first non-white families in the town that we grew up in
0: you've talked about how your parents are from one of the poorest and most remote parts of india and that your parents had an arranged marriage which you've said has given you a very different perspective on the path to commitment Mm. in what way
1: you know i grew up in a small town and it was i think when i was there was like two thousand people and I would always run into, you know, guys I grew up with are like, you know, I found my my soulmate in, you know, our high school of 80 people. <laughs> and you think, you know, I think actually circumstance arranges a lot more. What are the odds out of the back then 5 billion, now 7 billion people?
0: Yeah, I call those geographical accidents. Exactly, right? <laughs> and in the same
1: way that, like, you know, your best friend when you're 5 is the person who's close enough that you can get to their house. It doesn't really have to do with, like, well, our geopolitical views are similar. <laughs> and so to that point... You, the, in in a lot of ways, love is a choice, right? You might have personality things and beliefs and values that are similar, but if you're going to choose for any reason, whether it's because you are going to marry them, because you are going to uh, be a neighbor to them, because you are going to be a business partner with them, if you choose to make somebody part of your life in an ongoing, committed way, it's about the choice to do that every single day. And to some degree, that is what love is, is to keep choosing that even when it's hard or inconvenient or annoying.
0: And this might be a slightly too personal a question, which I've actually never started a question saying that before. Mm. Um, But are your parents happily married?
1: To their definition, yes. It's not recognizable to me as somebody that, you know, my wife and I chose each other and we had a, you know, by the standards of the family I was raised in, a love marriage. But, you know, you end up with different goals, right? Their number one priority uh, was, well, I guess their top two priorities are one to have a grandson, which I have now delivered to them. So uh, my utility to them is complete. Uh, <laughs> and the other was that I would be a doctor or a lawyer, which I have not yet succeeded at. And so they still have work to do in this life.
0: You don't have any yeah. honorary doctorates yet?
1: <laughs> Fortunately, they believe in reincarnation. So someday they may have a son who is a doctor or a lawyer.
0: You actually went to John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth the summer before you entered the eighth grade, and Mm. you also took a propositional calculus and logic course at Franklin and Marshall College.
1: You've done an unnerving amount of research. I appreciate that.
0: Oh, good. What were you imagining you were going to grow up to become at that point in your life?
1: When I was 12, I wanted to be a writer. And I had a little bit of an inkling of being a lawyer might be interesting because we had a lot of lawyers in our family on my mom's side. I didn't really know what a lawyer did. I just, like, they were taken seriously and I thought that was cool. Um, (laughs) But I liked to write and I knew that, like, a writer could tell, could say things to the world and I thought that was very interesting. And so at that age, that's what I really thought was important. Um, That program, the CTY program where they would take kids and you would go and be with a bunch of other nerds and hang out all summer and take, like, ostensibly college classes, was the first glimpse at, like, a little bit of autonomy and independence. We were living in dorms in a real college and so that felt like very grown-up stuff, um, but also the idea that we were going to be taken seriously as students. That actually left more of an impression on me than anything, that, that we were sort of respected, even though you know I was 12.
0: Were you bullied in school? You tweeted a while back that you had gotten a push notification that the bully who broke your nose in the seventh grade was turning 40 that day. Mm. So the internet was working as designed.
1: That's true. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And there's so much to unbundle from that tweet. So first, were you indeed bullied?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I did. It's true that I had my nose broken when I was in high school. I had my hubcaps on my car stolen and my windows smashed and I had, you know, any manner of things. Was
0: it racially instigated?
1: You know, this actually this is a project I've been working on for some time is I wanted to reach out to the kids who were involved and ask them. Yeah. Um, My impression is it, I, that was a factor. It was not the primary factor in full context. Like in high school, I would uh, sometimes wear women's clothing. I would often wear makeup. I would, you know, um, just whatever ways I had of expressing myself. So, anything to sort of push their buttons. And I would have shirts that I would write various things on about, like, you know, to be... Provocative. Yeah. And also, you know, they were very sincere. I mean, earnest in that way that a teenager can be. What was
0: one of the statements on the uh, shirts?
1: um, I remember uh, writing a lot about uh, what we now call marriage equality, what we then called gay marriage, you know, in the early 90s, to wear that to high school was a pretty good way to get beaten up. I felt very strongly about it. and Or even... um, just being able to state something like that and write it on a t-shirt to me was like this very freeing thing and i knew that people would be antagonized by it
0: in your official website bio you state that you never played a round of golf mm-hmm. never drank a cup of coffee or graduated from college
1: uh, i'm the first in my family not to go to college um which is a horrible thing as a child of immigrants to say my grandmother <laughs> in india in the 30s went you know like my sister has a masters degree um And the expectation was that I would do the same. And I actually had deferred going to school and then briefly went uh, to the University of Maryland, which I thought was great, actually, uh, for about six weeks. And the thing was, in the interim, the day after I graduated high school, I started my first company. And I had worked and I had, you know, put on a suit and felt like a grown-up and sold custom software to clients and felt like this is, you know, this is the thing I want to be when I grow up. And the Um, custom
0: software you had created... To do what,
1: exactly? Uh, It was very glamorous. It was around uh, doing job cost accounting, a specific type of accounting for construction companies. Because that's what I had done as my sort of summer job during high school. And I realized that they wanted a tool to do this particular kind of accounting and I could build it.
0: Now, on your official bio, your first official job was working at the Village Voice, and th- mm-hmm. and you began that job in 2001. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a few years younger than me, so I tried to do the math mm-hmm. to figure out when you actually graduated high school. <laughs> and I think you graduated in 1993. That's correct. Okay, good. There's so, 1993 there, there? to uh-huh. 2001. Mm-hmm. 2001 was your job at the Village Voice. Mm-hmm. So, between those seven years, eight years, yeah. you were just doing your own thing?
1: Oh, uh, there's a lot of things that happened in there. Uh, I'm a big Prince fan, and I graduated. And I I graduated (laughs) on uh, June seventh, nineteen ninety-three, which was the day that he changed his name to a symbol, and uh, and I started my first company. And I didn't know those were the same day until later, and somebody told me, and I just thought, oh, this is good. This is like a very auspicious moment. This is like a new beginning kind of thing. So I started the company, and I worked on it over the summer. And the idea was I was going to go to college that fall, sort of having had three months of building my thing, and I pushed it back a year went to college lasted about six weeks and said, I want to just be back doing the work. I really enjoy that. Part of it was the idea was like, I wanted to build software and what people wanted to hire me for, especially being a kid. I mean, I was, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't even 18 until that fall, uh, was, you know, plug in my printers and help us figure out how to make a network and like all this sort of very, very basic stuff. And I sort of sputtered along trying to figure out how to get people to pay me to do the thing I loved. And, you know, that didn't work real well. I mean, I think by, Two years later, I was living, like, back with my parents. I was broke. I was in the first real bad, bout of depression that I had. You know, it was everything.
0: You stated that one of your biggest regrets is that you spent the first decade of your career so focused on just being able to pay your rent and keep a roof over your head. And you didn't do enough to learn and think about others who would be impacted by the work you were doing. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you meant by that.
1: Yeah, you know, in that time, the mid '90s is when '95 is when Netscape IPOs, and the whole world is all of a sudden, what's this .dot com thing? And that only built and built. It's hard to even remember this twenty years later, but through '96, '97, '98, just the amount of cultural attention paid was extraordinary. It was everybody in the world looking at this thing. And uh, Gold Rush, right? So I knew people that were like. In business school, and like, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley. And I'm like, why? Like, you didn't, like, you used to make fun of me for liking computers. Like, why are you going there? Mm. And it was really tough for me because I was like, I love technology. Like, I just, this was the way that I'd always thought of, like, expressing myself or that that really felt like I was good at this thing. You'd mastered it. And to see people who clearly, like, not only didn't get it but had contempt for it, try to profit off of it. It felt a bit like, you know, at the same moment you had the sort of the decline of the whatever, like the grunge bands and the early hip hop bands from the early 90s that were sort of in that moment going through the same thing. And I was like, you know, why can you go like, don't go in the gold rush. Don't like try and follow the money and reached a breaking point for me. And I guess in 20 years ago, 1997, I just sort of said the hell with it. And I moved here to New York and I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any money. And I I was so illiterate in what it was to be in New York that I actually had a car. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and racked up a lot of tickets I couldn't pay for for a while until I got rid of it. And I took one continuing education class at NYU just to get graduate housing so that I could get housing I could afford to live in, in East Village uh, that summer until I could figure out you know some work to do or a job.
0: What would you say to yourself then with the perspective you have now?
1: Oh, nothing, because if you knew anything, you would never do it. Mm. You'd have to be an imbecile to do it. To, like, not know anybody and not have any money and think you're going to move to Manhattan and make it, you have to be ignorant. It's it's a requirement. Uh, And so I would preserve the ignorance of my imbecilic 21-year-old self and be like, just get in there, man. Knock yourself out. Have fun because you have no idea how bad your ass is about to get kicked.
0: Your depression actually led to your blogging. You (laughs) started blogging in 1999 and you've said that you started to do this because you were miserable and had a ton of time to kill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what made you decide to kill the time in public in this manner?
1: Uh, you know, I, I'd always had the idea of writing, and that was sort of there, and actually just physically creating a web page. I mean, it was at that time something that you would manually type in all the code for it, you know. There were no tools. That alone was worth it. And and the time was I had a job and, like, was living in a silly arrangement. And A long story was I was ending up with, like, three hours a day commuting. So to be able to take that and turn it into time to write made it feel like that was useful time as opposed to interminable time.
0: Your first post was on July twentieth, nineteen 1999, and it was about a Prince concert you'd attended. <laughs> <laughs> it was... I'm
1: never not a caricature of myself. <laughs>
0: It wasn't until five days later on July 25th, 1999, that you introduced the idea of what you referred to as the first hazy outlines of a weblog,
1: and went through different phases of enamoration with it. Um, but towards the point right around 96 or so, uh, 95, 96, as I was like figuring out what my career was going to be online and all those things. Again, another thing that drew me in was we had formed a, a community of Prince fans online. And Prince would drop in on the AOL chats and chat with us. And that was just mind-blowing, like this idea of a – I mean, nowadays everybody's on Twitter and it's whatever, like it's a normal thing. But the idea of like interacting with somebody you looked up to and to be able to talk about the work and and those things, I guess I was 20 years old, that was like – that seemed like the most interesting thing in the world.
0: You've said that being introduced as a blogger is like being introduced as an emailer.
1: (laughs) Right. The use of the technology is not so novel anymore, but people still do that. And I think part of it is the word took on this connotation of it meant that you were a certain kind of writer with a snarky voice and a certain point of view and a tone, some of which is accurate, some of which isn't. But I think it was interesting that you don't see that with other technologies. Nobody's called a Facebooker. But we do talk about Instagram stars and Vine stars and to some degree YouTube stars. And I think that's something about the nature of video, something about the nature of a personal voice. And also about how we see a medium. Very few people are known as tweeters or twitterers. And so why is that? Is that about text versus video? What is it that makes somebody... And and yet, you know, blogging is almost always text. And people call themselves bloggers or are called by others as bloggers. And I just think there's a lot to unpack there about our relationship to technology. And when is a technology something that defines who you are and what your identity is and part of your identity? And when is it just a tool that you use? We have... Millions of people that are photoshoppers, Mm. you know, that are garage banders and that are pro-toolers, and yet none of them are called that.
0: You now describe yourself as being in the technology industry, but you stated in a really remarkable interview with Krista Tippett that technology always means things invented after you were born. And so there was a time when the technology industry was the wheel. And there was a time when the technology industry was fire. And it's every iteration along the way has been the first people to do agriculture were the technologists of their time. And Anil, I've never thought of tech in this way. Um, what do you imagine humanity will look back on in the tech we're using today mm. and think is prehistoric?
1: The things I already see uh I have a five-year-old son, and I see the things he catches in movies. A lot of uh, my friends and my peers that have kids have seen this, too. Of, um, you know, why is that phone connected to the wall? Mm. Right? So that comes <laughs> up a lot. And, yeah. and I had to explain to him, not only did I have phones connected to the wall, they didn't have any apps, you know. And he's like, well, what did you do with it? And I was like, I, I ask myself that sometimes, too. Or even that I had a computer that was not connected to anything, not let on the Internet. It wasn't connected to anything. It was just a computer. That's like being given an empty box and try to imagine what you're going to do to play with it. Those are basic concepts. The idea of disconnected experiences and in particular, one of those interesting things I think is not talked about a lot in the transition from party lines to home wall phones to mobile phones is a phone went from being connected to a place to connected to a home to connected to a person. And so I look at, you know, when I was in high school, there was a girl I ended up dating because I was friends with her brother and she would answer the phone. And I'd talk to her briefly before asking, you know, is your brother there? How would you even reach somebody unintentionally on a phone today? Those kinds of shifts of person-to-person connectivity and devices being about a person and the idea that a device is useless unless it's connected, which we're seeing the extreme now with everybody trying to make the, like, internet fridge and the, you know, smart thermometer and whatever else that they invent... I think as humans, we feel that connection is meaning. And because we anthropomorphize all the devices and the objects that we use, we try to project upon them that connection is meaning for them too.
0: I think Dan Formosa said that we're not in love with the devices. We're in love with the feeling that we get when we're using the devices and connecting Mm -hmm. with each other.
1: I balk at the critique of especially young people where they say, you know, you're not paying attention to the real world. You're just looking at that phone. And it's like... You know, the real world is full of strangers. This phone is full of people I love.
0: In as much as you've been blogging consistently, you've had many different jobs and positions in the tech business. You left the Village Voice to become the first employee of Ben and Mina Trot Six Apart. Ben and Mina are the creators of Movable Type, Vox, and TypePad. You stayed there for six years and left as the vice president of evangelism. (laughs) What does that mean exactly?
1: It's a little bit of a fake title. It's a, it's a title they give you when you're like, you've been around a long time and you're almost a founder, but not quite a founder. They don't know what to do with you and they don't want to, you know, promote you. And what it, Eventually ended up being as a sort of an outward marketing role. You go to events and you talk about the products and you talk about the company and you get people excited. And we were hiring a ton of people, so you get the new hires excited about what they're doing, joining the company. And you're sort of the storyteller, um, but it's a you know, it's a marketing role without the blocking and tackling actual functional things of doing marketing.
0: After six apart, you. Created or worked with the following companies: Expert Labs, ThinkUp, Makerbase, Activate, and you're currently the CEO of Fog Creek Software. Mm-hmm. What do you think of your career path?
1: Uh, it was not predictable, and I would not necessarily advocate it to anybody. But I have loved doing all of it, and I think it's um it's an interesting because you know in that mix of things you listed, there's like nonprofits that, like, I had to write a grant proposal of the MacArthur Foundation to create expert labs, and I had no idea what that meant, you know, all the way to the other end of, of ThinkUp was a fairly conventional startup with, you know, outside investors, and we really tried to make a go of it. And I'm very proud of the product, but we sort of had picked the wrong time to bet on building a tool around social media the way we did, and so that didn't work. But we got this, like, this really great breadth, and the through line for me was always this how to find meaning in all this technology and all the social media and social networking that we were creating. In some degrees in retrospect, have seen a lot of it as atoning for uh, the choices that all of us made wrong when we created the world of social media and social networks because the you know the company six apart we were just talking about, we created some of the first blogging software. so we made the tools that we used to publish and create Gawker and Huffington Post and you know just countless sites like that that are still around today, for the most part, Gawker aside. They succeeded, but we also set these norms around how a social network would function. And at that time, it was a very small cohort to like sit down with like the MySpace folks and the Facebook people when those teams were 10 people, you know, and say, how should we do comments on the internet? And how should we do sign in? And what should your identity be? Things that we take for granted, we use every day. And we, since then, made every mistake that now is classic, right? Whether it's how do you accidentally reveal people's information? How do you expose people to abuse? How do you enable harassment communities to form? How do you create all these antisocial behaviors? How do you allow uh, false information to spread? Every single one of those is traceable to design decisions in the creation of social media and social networking tools. And these were, these could have they would never have been prevented, but they could have been greatly diminished or not been so empowered how we made different choices in the technologies that you created. And once we started to see, some of us started to see that there were these errors, it was really hard to put sort of the cat back in the bag. And more, I think, to my chagrin, a lot of people decided that they didn't care because there was so much money to be made that there were going to be these negative effects and that maybe they would fix it later.
0: You talk a lot now on your personal blog, which you have been continuously writing since 1999, about your advocacy for making the tech world more humane and ethical. How inhumane and unethical do you think it is?
1: Um, You know, it's very – this depends. This varies a lot. Some of the people I know in tech are some of the most thoughtful and genuine and generous people I've ever met. There is incredible heart there. I think, one, the vast majority of people are not aware of the negative side effects of what they create because they just can't see it. I've ranted a lot about the fact that our computer science programs seldom contain ethics curriculum. And there are implications from that where you just aren't taught how to think about the social impacts of what you do.
0: And yet there are so many ethics classes for lawyers and doctors. Yeah, and
1: every other professional they discipline. do no harm, right? That's right. There were these, you know... Aspirations. There were the people that didn't know about the negative impact they could have. And then the recent thing is the sort of the reveal of the Bond villains, the genuine bad actors. You know, the Peter Thiel's of the world who will carry on a years-long, decades-long vendetta behind the scenes using immeasurable resources to carry out the pettiest grievances with the worst secondary effects. That was the thing I had not conceived of. I was far too naive to think that there were actual bad guys that were actually making bad plans to hurt innocent people for no reason. And he cleverly picked a target that also had, there's a lot of valid criticisms of Gawker. There are a lot of, you know, real reasons to say, I don't like some of their ethical choices. But there was no concern for the collateral damage, and we're seeing the follow-on effects of that now and will be for years.
0: What's frightening is is how close Peter Thiel is now to the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you stated that as a journalist, you see a real consonance between the moral challenge that tech has and the moral challenge that journalism has. You talked quite a lot about this with Krista. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the consonance?
1: A lot of things. I mean, I'm not a journalist, but I, you know, when I was at the Village Voice and other places, got to work closely with journalists. And I have a lot of criticisms of journalism. Everybody does, especially journalists. But there is a proud ethical tradition and a constantly negotiated set of expectations and guidelines around how to behave, which I think there's a fair argument to be made. They spend too much time sort of navel-gazing and debating over that stuff. But that's such a contrast to tech, where it's sort of the literally move fast to break things, right? It's as close to an ethical framework as we have in the tech industry today. Yet, the impacts are very, very similar in terms of the consonants between tech and journalism, Both are defining, one, the framing of how we see culture. They're outlining the space and saying this is what's in the boundaries of acceptable conversation and what is appropriate to focus on. They are both making very strong decisions about what to emphasize, right? And one of the biggest things we see in culture right now are there are falsehoods, sure. There are lies through emphasis. And this is a thing that journalism and tech are probably equally guilty of you know and in the broader world of journalism we see this on tv news local tv news of the like if it bleeds it leads and as a result there is almost nobody in america who thinks we're at the lowest period for crime violent crime in the history of the country yet that's pretty much true if not we're very very close to it and so there's a distortion through emphasis and tech exacerbates that and in fact has a tendency towards that because of what are the easiest patterns for creating code for ranking things and designing things is basically a rich-get-richer algorithm. And so it's very easy to say this is the most popular app in the app store and the most popular song in the music store and the the most popular uh, search result for this thing. And what happens is you build these self-reinforcing networks that not just repeat the patterns of exclusion and inequity in the physical world, but amplify them and exacerbate them.
0: Isn't that what the echo chamber is supposedly... It's
1: it's definitely it's definitely one of those factors. But I think it's obvious in the media sphere. It's obvious in how stories get amplified. It's obvious in the filter bubbles that we see in terms of what media people consume. It's less obvious in uh, where we shop, who we buy from, even things like how we pay for items and sort of a lot of these uh, more fundamental economic concepts that we don't have a lot of transparency into.
0: I'm not entirely sure I agree with that when it comes to the types of products that we are able to buy. I've often said that somebody out there must like peach flavored powdered iced tea mm-hmm. because it's being made. You know, companies aren't going to make things that people no, don't th- buy
1: That's true. There's a hyper optimization to the like. well, um, I think I think the the consumer product companies know that, they will sell more if they occupy as much shelf space as possible. And the way to occupy as much shelf space as possible is to make every flavor, every variation that can help us achieve that. So 100 different types of iced tea takes up all that shelf space or virtual shelf space, and and that becomes the thing you see in front of you. But the number of companies that can put, you know, an iced tea or a box of cereal in front of you at scale is relatively small depending on what you're trying to do. I think the example I would point at is, say you make peach-flavored iced tea, your main channels to get it to a consumer are going to be Walmart, Target, Amazon, right? And you might have one or two others in the major grocery labels, right? All of them have pay-to-play positioning, right? And grocery stores' end caps on Amazon it's just pure paid ranking. We're seeing this play out in things like Uber. Anytime you had that sort of buy-in market, you can overinvest and drive out any smaller players to where they can't effectively compete, right? So if you're General Mills and you got a cereal and somebody says, we want to make our own cereal, it's going to compete. And you say, you know what? We're going to outbid you on every end cap in every supermarket in America because we have virtually infinite dollars compared to you. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no way you can enter and establish yourself. You can hope to route around them with like a really good social media campaign.
0: Or a really good design method yeah. is a good example of that.
1: That's right. And, and so traditionally that's been the way for the, the underdog to step in. What we're seeing is, one, the... You know, the idea of if, if you build a brand like that that's based on design, based on experience, based on uh, branding and communication to people, they can first bid against you in all those social contexts. When you do the Google search, when you do the Facebook search, uh, how do they get themselves in front of you and say, well, we'll be 10 cents cheaper and be able to do this? I think the other part that we're seeing is I, I fully expect to have these networks start to bid on the ability to suppress the other products. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that in, in some markets already. We're seeing that in some places like... Well,
0: you know, we're seeing the President of the United States do that with journalists that he's willing to speak to in right, press conferences. Right,
1: right. And, and I think there's this idea that we had in the first wave of the internet of like open markets. You go on eBay and anybody who wants to put up a Pez dispenser can sell it. And if yours is 10 cents cheaper, I'll buy it and everybody's happy. And, you know, Etsy still runs like that today. Pretty open market. Then we have the second wave of like the market where they have their thumb on the scale. Right, so you go to Amazon and you search for bed sheets, and Amazon has a house brand, Pins on, and their bed sheets will show up first. But then everybody else is under it, so at least you know, okay, there's this open market. And then the strategy that I think Uber is the most clear example of this: Uber presents itself to regulators into new cities that they enter as if they are a market. On this one side, is consumers who want to hail a car, and on the other side, is these vendors who drive cars, and we are the market where they match make. Of course, this is not a market where any of the drivers can set the price where any of the passengers can choose between the drivers on their own, affirmatively, where there's any visibility into the algorithm by which they're matched, we know for a fact that the algorithm sometimes lies, what they call ghost cars, where they, you fire up the app and it says there's three Ubers around you, average wait will be two minutes. You push the button and it says, oh, it's 10 minutes. Turns out there's not one near you. Um, that's been documented that that's something that they do. And there's no way for a driver to object to a price change when Uber says we're going to turn your rates down and you're going to make less money. So that's not a market in any recognizable way.
0: And from what I understand, they also can't opt out now to choose a specific passenger. They just get who they're given.
1: That's correct. So there's a lot of different factors there, but it effectively does not function as a market. Yet, because they have used this framing where these are independent contractors, they're not our employees, and they're offering a price and they can choose what hours they want to work. And we've kept this fig leaf of them being entrepreneurial and this being an open market that's competitive. Interestingly, across the political spectrum, almost no matter matter where you sit – Politicians have embraced this. This is the future of the economy. It is a systematic way of undermining labor and undermining markets as we know it. And yet it's treated as if it were an open market. Right? It's treated like it an eBay for, for taxi drivers.
0: So what can we do about this? What, what do people do when they, are, when they become aware of this information?
1: You know, I've asked people to just stop using Uber. And it's interesting how many excuses they'll come up with not to. And I see this like in in the media sphere where uh, both Google and Facebook have introduced systems uh, for bringing media stories into their platform. So Google has a thing called AMP. Facebook has a thing called Instant Articles. And what you see it as is you look for a story and Google says, oh, this will be fast if you load it on your phone. It will load instantly. Or Facebook says, we're going to just take this story from BuzzFeed or The Washington Post and just put it right into your stream and you don't need to load another app or go to another website. There is a consumer benefit. They load faster. They are nicer to read. They do good formatting. So there is a great design experience. What we don't have a regulatory framework for is a short-term consumer benefit being a long-term consumer harm. Almost all of our regulatory frameworks, you look at the FCC, FTC, these other frameworks, they are predicated in the idea that a short-term consumer benefit must also necessarily be a long-term consumer benefit. So the short-term consumer benefit, which is true of Uber saying uh, it improves the availability of uh, African-American passengers to be able to hail a taxi versus the unfair ways in which primarily South Asian drivers refuse to pick them up. Absolutely true. And this is, you know, there's a history of anti-blackness in the South Asian community. It directly manifests in this way. And Uber is a better solution in that regard. That is true. And there are are variations that even that the pricing is cheaper than a traditional black car. Probably true in a lot of cities that that will necessarily lead to, for example, here in New York City, there are more Uber drivers than taxi drivers already. So the balance has shifted. Two, the Uber rides are being subsidized by venture capitalists to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. The goal is to drive the taxis out of business first, at which point they will, of course, raise the prices because Uber will have a de facto monopoly. And they're not a functioning market, so the drivers won't have any control over that. And if the drivers do balk, uber stated policies they want to replace them all with self-driving cars in the next five to ten years so there's no leverage right there is no there's no you're not even an ability for the workers to organize so this is the transformation that's about to happen and yet we're still talking about it as if it's software right so you say to what you ask people what is uber they're like they're a tech company what do they do they're meant to destabilize transportation systems in cities right (laughs) like that's the goal the goal is To undermine this sort of, you know, the labor systems around transportation and around transitive items and goods and people.
0: Well, this comes down to convenience. And this is also why we as a culture are so willing and so readily giving up our rights to privacy. Because it's more convenient.
1: Yeah, and even why we choose wasteful packaging for convenience. Absolutely, and And that was what
0: I was saying about. I wasn't talking about peach flavored powdered iced Mm -hmm. tea as a as as a slotting. Um, manufacturing issue, I was seeing it as this is an aesthetic taste that somebody Mm -hmm. would like in their lives because it's convenient. Yeah, And so we're willing to give up all sorts of things in order for our lives to be convenient thinking that everybody else out there will take the moral high road and therefore my individual behavior will not affect anything.
1: Right. So then you get to how do you change behavior? And that comes to making culture. The single industry that is more responsible for creating culture today than any other, even entertainment or media, is tech. And part of it is because we're the mediators for the entertainment and media world, right? So it used to be, you know, the front page of the New York Times or the Dan Rather doing the evening news or the movie that was opening in the Cineplexes would affect culture. But you won't even see that story on the front page of the New York Times unless Facebook decides you will, right? If you're on Facebook looking for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the majority of people. Or looking at it at all. The majority of people's consumption of media is at least majority moderated through technology platforms today, right? And that's even true where of things that we don't think of as technology anymore, like your cable box, right? So what's featured and what the summaries are that are written, which shows have detailed summaries in the program guide on your cable box and which ones don't, those are decisions by technology companies too, making editorial decisions that we think of as neutral. And so... This idea that you're going to route around them, and especially as they get more and more integrated, right? Like the boundaries of like, where is Comcast a media company? Where is it a tech company? It's like all of the above. This is a really big reckoning. And we have these sort of few tech media conglomerates that are bridging the gap between these things. And the control, the choke points in all these is where the most economic value is created. And that is in the tech side, because they run the ad networks and they, they control the sort of the, the buying behavior and the surveillance behavior that enables the advertising to be sold.
0: You stated that Twitter is the place that popular culture gets created. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? I
1: think more than any other one network. It's an interesting thing because it's not the biggest. It's not the you know, the most users. But in America, at least, there's no one network that has as much impact on culture, as I think Donald Trump has demonstrated ably, uh, than Twitter
0: After Trump became president, Twitter gave him the POTUS handle, and Mm. suddenly everyone that had opted into following President Mm. Obama were suddenly following Trump, myself included. Twitter apologized for this, but I couldn't understand how something like that could happen.
1: I have some insight into this. I was an advisor to the Office of Digital Strategy under the Obama administration and talked specifically to them about this transition, which was well planned out. That was entirely intentional, and they announced the plan months ago that the Obama administration's tweets would be archived with a sort of 44 suffix. So, you know, POTUS became POTUS 44 and White House became White House 44. And uh, the tweets would be copied over and the followers would be copied to both accounts. It's like um, Y2K. <laughs> yeah, it was a very elaborate um, transition. And, of course, I mean, Twitter can't ship features on the best of days for their products, let alone on a one-day switchover of the one of the most visible accounts in the world. Uh, so they botched that up. But even if they hadn't, people would have been upset to have said, I, you know, I followed the last POTUS, I didn't choose to follow this POTUS, because there's a surprise expectation. But in addition, people who hadn't been following were, and vice versa, and so you end up with the, the worst of all worlds. Especially because there's so much mistrust about, um, one, the opaque nature of how following and such algorithms work on social networks, and two, about any ethical boundaries from the Trump administration in terms of what they would do to make their audience look bigger.
0: You've been writing quite a lot on Medium.com and recently wrote this about Donald Trump. There are going to be endless think pieces and armchair analyses about why America elected Donald Trump as its next president, but you already know why. And I was wondering if you can tell me (laughs) what you know that I don't. You're trying to get me
1: in trouble. (laughs) Uh, What's the the non-scary way to say white supremacy? Because that's it. That's the answer. Like, people are trying to, like, overanalyze this and the other thing and... Were there, you know, shortcomings and flaws in Hillary Clinton's campaign and her candidacy? Absolutely. Uh, Are there inequities in, you know, the Electoral College and how it represents the population and the popular vote? Absolutely. Ultimately, a bunch of people saw this guy being an unapologetic misogynist and an unveiled racist and thought that's okay because of whatever other reason. And those of us whose lives are put in danger by those positions of his and who cannot count in its, its literal history of assaulting people, know where the line lies. And there are people, a lot of people, millions of people in America who don't find someone who has admitted to committing uh, repeated sexual assaults to be unviable for the highest office in the land. They're wrong. It's not more complicated than that. People want to sort of find this probing, you know, soul searching, whatever thing. It's like, no, there are a bunch of people that don't think it's wrong for a guy to be uh, an abuser of women and an unapologetic racist. And um, that's because they have the privilege of feeling that way.
0: You recently created a petition demanding the release of Donald Trump's tax returns on the We the People White House website. (laughs) What made you decide to do this and why the We the People White House website? Oh,
1: for fun. Um, The the initial (laughs) launch of the petition site was something that the Um, Expert Labs, the team I put together, we consulted a little bit on, but also mostly I just got to watch the team build. And the idealism of what the petition site was going to do had always stuck with me. You know, five years ago when they launched it, I just thought the ambition and the sincerity of it was really touching. And I loved that there were so many interesting petitions. And, you know, there's no regulation binding it to exist, let alone the White House to follow it. It's a purely voluntary thing the Obama administration did. Initially, they weren't great at following through on it, but they got better and they made these promises that they kept around responding in 60 days when petitions were used to threshold. And that just meant a lot to me. It was something that was very, very inspiring to me. And um, at our office, a bunch of people were watching the inauguration, swearing in of Trump around the office, and I just kind of couldn't bear it. I decided to check out the whitehouse.gov website to see what had changed. It's a site that I know well and and I saw they had kept the petitions up, and I thought—
0: Which is shocking, by the way, <laughs> given how much they've taken down.
1: Yeah. No, and they, they had to have chosen to have re-implemented it. it. Actually, it's a non-trivial amount of work to get the app that makes the petition site run to run, and uh, and they did the work. And this is, you know, I could be projecting whatever. My impression of that was there were these sincere, well-intentioned, probably relatively young tech workers who knew that was the right thing to do and did it.
0: You needed 100,000 signatures to ensure a response from the White House, and you got more than that in less than 12 hours. Mm-hmm. At one point, you were getting more than two signatures every second, mm-hmm. and the petition was more popular than Trump's new White House bio. Mm-hmm. Did the response surprise you? Nope. And what's going to happen now?
1: Well, you know, Kellyanne Conway did respond. She said, we're not going to release the taxes. What was interesting to me was, one, I wanted to shake out whether my theory about this being run by a team of earnest digital implementers in this new administration was true. That, that Just this idea that there are still these people who think, you know, there's still good in this guy and maybe we can cajole him into doing the right thing. Like, I don't believe that's the case and I wanted them to see it. There are a million people that work for the federal government and they're all hopeful that their boss has some ethics, some decency. And the sooner they're disabused of that notion and actively start resisting the worst parts of his agenda, the better off we are. And so to have a moment of clarity on day one, where they can see inarguably in office the will of the people in the form of a public promise they made in writing on the White House website that they would respond to, and to take it and say, I don't care, I'm not going to do it, should hopefully be clarifying to any last stragglers that were feeling that there was some ambiguity about his moral character. That was one. Two... I think what's really useful is to show people that feel that this issue matters that we have each other. I think visibility to a community is really powerful and that this feeling of not being alone. I like that a lot of this played out at the same day as the March on Washington, the Women's March, because it was sort of a similar mindset. And in particular, um, you know, the petition I wrote, it, it, it mentions the taxes, but it's really about compliance with the Constitution. You know, and that was something where... Again, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum, how you feel about Donald Trump. There's nobody whose stated position can logically be that we should have a president in violation of the Constitution. He literally at that moment had just sworn to uphold. Right? That's that, there's just no rational way that that can be the position that somebody holds. And so to say what the petition does say is we want to verify compliance with the Constitution it's not any more complicated than that. We just want to have enough information to be able to judge if you're doing the thing that you swore right now to do. Now, the counter arguments I hear are, you know, his taxes are none of your business and there's no legal requirement. And of course, you know, the, the last refuge of every scumbag is technically this is legal. But <laughs> but even beyond that, it's none of our business. It's like it doesn't matter because the, the Constitution has this rule. And Literally, the job is to execute. This is called the executive branch because your job is to execute the laws beginning with the Constitution. And so to me, it was a he has far worse traits and far worse, uh, you know, more grievous ethical violations than this. What I find is this is the clarifying one because it starts from the very simple can you take something that's actually pretty early in the Constitution, too? It's like it's not even an amendment, right? You know, it's like it's something pretty core. And can you say, we want to make sure that you're just following the unambiguous letter of the law and if you can't gather around that and rally around that then the rest of the game is sort of laid bare
0: if you were looking into a crystal ball what do you view his presidency like in six months
1: it gets worse before it gets better
0: will it get better if all we do is March
1: no of course not Um, marching is meaningful and it's interesting because you know Bush was very dismissive of the marches in the lead up to the Iraq War. Didn't even really acknowledge them. It was a sort of a weird, you know, I don't see them kind of moment. But Trump's ego and insecurity and his fixation on public size acknowledgement and, mm-hmm. and and yeah and and size are so defining to him and so obvious. I mean, this is the most, in some ways, the most easily manipulated person who's ever been elected president. And that's part of why like the petition made sense to me. You know, what we were able to do with the petition was put something on Trump's agenda and Kellyanne Conway's agenda that didn't come from a Donald Trump tweet. It came from our voices. The march succeeded in putting something on their agenda that didn't come from his tweets and came from our voices. That's the key, is to not give over every morning to whatever TV show caught his eye the night before being the topic that he is going to lead the conversation on for the day.
0: How can we best, as a society who really wants progress, how can we best use technology to combat alternative facts or false news?
1: People consume, amplify, and believe fake news, alternative facts, as a matter of identity. So the people who choose to believe in absurd conspiracy theories like, you know, Pizzagate or... uh, the birther movement, are doing so because they see that as a way to belong to a community that they see themselves as part of. So the only way to unroot someone from that is to speak to the values they have that disconnect them from that group.
0: So it's really about their inherent desperation.
1: Yeah. And and even, you know, sometimes it's affirmative. It's the I love the feeling of belonging to something that's bigger than me, where people tell me I'm right, where we're standing up for something that is unpopular because we're brave together. Uh, you know, we're beleaguered, but we're in it together. That's something people really are drawn to that feeling. And it's a, a very human, very um, deep, deep-seated emotional thing for people. And so the idea that a fact check is going to get somebody to forego their friendships is absurd. And to say, you know, this is a, a context in them that makes me feel like I have meaning and that I have purpose. And you simply you're telling me that it's wrong is not enough and, in fact, strengthens it, right, because right. it proves that we're on a mission, yeah, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because most of the objection to this, what I see is somebody that didn't go to college and grew up in a, in a small town and went to relatively crappy public schools and it very felt very much out of place when I came to New York City and sort of first started being around what I will still think of as NPR types. You know, it is very isolating. It is very ostracizing. It is very intimidating. There's an incredible amount of condescension. There's an illiteracy. You know, I, I, our junior high school would shut down on the first day of hunting season because every kid was out hunting and they all had guns. And that's a part I'm very empathetic towards. I, I'm very mindful of, I think, the thing that's gotten a ton of attention around, you know, can we be empathetic to rural whites? It's like, that's what I grew up with. You know, and the issues of economic insecurity, whatever, those are all true. But here's the thing, like I know tons of black and brown folks who are poor or who grew up poor or who have economic insecurity no matter what financial level they're at right now. And none of them became white supremacists. So it can't be enough that economic insecurity and and the cultural arrogance of coastal elites causes white supremacy because it doesn't
0: happen to folks who aren't white. (laughs) Well, that's because not being white was never considered superior. Yeah. So the only thing that they're holding on to is the only thing they think they have left.
1: Right. You know, and and to the same point, you know, I know plenty of folks who are not well off who are staunch feminists and who don't tolerate misogyny and sexual abuse. And so, again, it is not, uh, you know, the economic insecurity of people that causes them to hate women, especially, you know— the women who voted for Trump. And so, you know, there's a dishonesty to the way we talk about these things where we sort of want to talk around the excuses and what we're talking about is values and moral choices. And I 100% understand people that said, I find these things off-putting, but not enough for me to change my identity about the group that I belong to and the group that I belong to wants to make America great again or whatever else their rhetoric is. The key thing is that so many people see policy and lawmaking and rules and government as an abstraction that is irrelevant to them or not doesn't really affect people's lives or as a game or as a reality TV show, which is completely an understandable view to have right now. Or
0: it's entertainment.
1: Yeah. And to be disconnected from the process. And the answer is the same challenge as why you shouldn't buy the incredibly disposable product with the wasteful packaging which is this, like, you have to make the hard choice and forego the convenience and actually get involved. Culturally, we don't have a disposition towards that. We don't have a media and tech ecosystem that rewards long-term, thoughtful, contemplative, slow, meaningful uh, choices. And, you know, it's the sort of the difference in the gym on January 1st versus on December 31st, to who's showing up, right? You know, the, all these things are like, you, we're, we're preaching lifestyle change. Right? Climate change is about lifestyle change. Addressing the health crisis broadly is about lifestyle change. Addressing falsehood in media is about lifestyle change. And the infrastructures and the structures we used to rely on to help us accomplish changing our own lives and aspiring to much more ambitious longer-term things were institutions like houses of worship and faith, uh, media, and even some degree government. And all of those, our trust has been so destabilized, and they've let us down, in so many ways that we would never trust them for the day, let alone for a year, let alone for a life, to help guide us towards these better choices over for the long term. And so we've lost the, the moral compasses, the, the guides to our values that we can trust over a long term. And they've been mostly disrupted by technology. And we have not had those of us that make technology recreate those bonds in the social networks that we are building today.
0: Do you see that coming? If there's this need, will it be filled? I don't know yet. And the other last question I want to ask you is something that you talked about on Twitter. You recently asked your Twitter followers if you could get everybody to read one book. What would it be? Mm. And you revealed your choice as *The Power Broker* by mm. Robert Caro. Why?
1: Uh, so if you don't, have, people don't have context. Uh, Robert Moses is the subject of the book, and he was the most innovative and broadly impactful creator of public works, maybe in the history of America, including highway systems and bridge systems all over here in New York state. And also deeply controversial, especially because of the reasons that were uh, revealed in the Power Broker book, for the deeply exclusionary ways that he built those systems. Uh, One of the examples people often point to is he made the bridges on the parkways to the beaches in the New York City area too low for public buses to pass through as a method of keeping what he considered undesirables, mostly people of color, from going to those beaches. And so you have this perfect illustration of what we usually use the metaphor of structural barriers to represent, but it was a literal structural barrier uh, to keep people away from spaces that were labeled public. There's a lot more to it. There's, this is a long read, it's a dense read. As a work of journalism, it's remarkable, and scholarship, it's remarkable and it's great storytelling, but it also taught me about how systems are built, how networks are built. Highways are just networks, too. And the power that networks have to connect and the nefarious way in which structural barriers in those networks radically change history, radically change opportunity, and in some ways prescribe the opportunity that entire communities will have. And so that as a lens into how the world around us works was very, very revealing. And at a personal level, my family is here in the U.S. because my father was a highway engineer and built highways. At the time he came to the U.S. in 1963, the federal law was still in place prohibiting immigration from India. And he was an exception as a student. And then later they changed the immigration laws in the mid-60s to allow limited immigration from India. But, you know, they didn't want us here. And the work that he did in building the highways was considered critical to the national security, because it was the Eisenhower highway system, and there was the sort of specter of the Cold War, and we were going to use these highways to, I don't know, get away from Armageddon. And, you know, in cities across America, the highways were rammed through, you know, black, Jewish, and Latino neighborhoods in almost every city. You know, to think of that the door was open to immigrants from Asia on the condition that they'd be complicit in creating these systems that displaced the first communities that gave us our homes. Because when Indian people came to the U.S., it wasn't white neighborhoods they were living in. It was only revealed to me in the context of reading through the book. That's not there, but it was connecting the dots of my family's story to what was outlined in the Power Broker. And there had been a precedent 50 years prior when the railroads were built that even at the height of anti-Asian fervor in the U.S., Uh, Chinese and Indian immigrants were allowed to come in and build the railways. So we had, at the turn of the 20th century, a brief window where Chinese and Indian immigrants could come and help build a national network, and then were kicked out. And then in the middle of the century, folks like my father were let in to have this brief window of being able to build a national network, and then they tightened the immigration laws. And then at the end of the 20th century and the rise of the Internet, you look at who's coming to work in Silicon Valley, And it's Chinese and Indian immigrants on H-1Bs, building a national network that's supposed to help with commerce and communication. And seeing that pattern, it was, like, inevitable to me that Trump would be elected.
0: Anil, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for all you've done for technology and culture.
1: Glad to make it. Thank you.
0: To learn more about Anil Dash, check out his blog, anildash.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.